Hello and welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast, a show about planning for, responding to and recovering from emergencies. I'm Stuart Walker and on today's show we discuss international deployment of incident management team personnel to support major emergencies. In October 2017, emergency management personnel from Victoria in Australia were deployed to assist in managing the devastating fires in Northern California. Senior Station Officer Chris Hall from the Country Fire Authority was amongst the contingent, and he joined me to discuss his role and also some of the key learnings from the experience. Chris Hall, welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast. Chris, can I start by asking you how you got started in emergency management? Uh, yeah, thanks, Stu. I, um, I, I must admit I've had a couple of career choices over the journey. Uh, I did know some people that were employed as career firefighters with the CFA and, and the role attracted me as well as their work conditions and a few other factors. I must admit I went into it uh, a little bit blind at the time, um, but having said that, uh, we've now been in for coming up for 14 years and the career has been absolutely everything and more that uh, that I think it promised. And you're currently stationed at uh, South Warrandyte. How's that move gone for you? South Warrandyte's good. It's a newly integrated station. Uh, we probably aren't as um, busy as a lot of the other stations around the state. However, we are a strategic location. Uh, there's quite a, a fair amount of risk around us. But also due to the nature of that risk and the density of the population uh, and just some of the other demographics, there's a fair bit of they're, they're large blocks of land, uh, not a lot of population. So therefore, I think the call rate's always going to be on the lower side. Having said that, though, um, I, I really enjoy the location and the, the challenges that it offers. And when we look at the risk at the window here at South Warrandyte, you can see that during summer you would have your work cut out for you if something did eventuate. Yeah, the Warrandyte Township is certainly ranked up there as one of the most uh, fire-prone or um, risk, fire-risk areas, I think, in Australia and possibly in the world. And Chris, you've, you've recently been deployed for, to, to the United States, working in the fires in California. So can you just talk us through how that came about and what was involved in actually getting there? Yeah, that was a really exciting opportunity uh, that was offered uh, to us. Um, I was one of seven... CFA personnel that was sent over and uh, another there was another 27 or 28 DELP or Parks Victoria and DELP agency personnel as well. So the opportunity came about uh, where I think the offer was extended from EMV through to CAL FIRE and they do have an overarching body referred to as CAL FIRE OES which is the Office of Emergency Service. Uh, It happened fairly shortly. I got an email on the Friday night, uh, a couple of phone calls on the Saturday. There was a selection decision made on the Sunday. Um, There was a couple of us that were sent from District 13 uh, as part of the contingent. Uh, Monday afternoon, we were doing our task-based assessment, which uh, comprised of a pack test of a uh, a 4.83-kilometre walk wearing 20.4 kilos in under 45 minutes. That was conducted that we had to have an arduous rating in order to be deployed and a couple of other medicals and some um, visas, travel visas and the like and Wednesday morning, uh, approximately uh, 36 hours from the task-based assessment, we were on the plane heading to California. So a fairly quick turnaround. 
very quick turnaround, yeah. and um, I must uh, thank my wife for being very understanding. <laughs> Indeed. And, and Chris, you mentioned earlier that the, the fires over in California had some parallels to Black Saturday. So just describe the fires to, to me and how big was the problem? These were certainly the worst fires in Californian history, uh, not necessarily from the amount of area that was burnt, but certainly due to the loss of life and the loss of structures and the amount of people that were displaced. So doing some very rough research, I think there was a total of about 450,000 acres that were burnt, where compared to Black Saturday, I think we it was about 1.1 million acres, so a little bit under half of that. There were uh, over 6,000 structures lost, where in Black Saturday I think we accounted for about 3,500. Uh, but probably where they were very lucky was is that there was 43 confirmed at this point uh, fatalities uh, versus 173, I think, for Black Saturday. So it was quite interesting. It burnt through quite different um, territory. Uh, a lot of the Black Saturday fires, and there were multiples, but the main fire uh, certainly that started in, in Kilmore burnt through a lot of state park and national national park and forested areas, and then into some some townships that were. Um, reasonably uh, small populations, whereas this fire started in similar territory, although quite hilly, but then burnt through some some um, uh, very high-end residential, back down into uh, some residential areas where it was just normal six, 700 square metre blocks, and then actually managed to cross an eight-lane freeway and then took out a commercial block as well of um, Kmart, uh, McDonald's, a few other um, large stores as well. And so I guess com- compared to Black Saturday, these fires really were infiltrating much further than we saw into that sort of semi-residential, semi-urbanised area? Very urbanised. And I think we could probably draw some comparisons to the Canberra fires. Uh, but in, in Canberra, I think the fire extended in a couple of streets from where the fuel type changed and it went from the, the forest. But uh, due to the conditions that were... Uh, prevalent at the time, yeah, it was just incredible how much of the residential area that it burned through. In a lot of these major emergencies, the sheer scale of it just overwhelms the emergency services. I imagine that was the same over in California. Absolutely no doubt. And talking to some of the crews that were first responders and their their stories uh, about what they tried to do, uh, it was... I, I, I don't even begin to sit there and, and try to imagine what they were going through. It, Put in a little bit of context as well, the fire started approximately 9 or 10 o'clock the night before. So a lot of these people were evacuated in the middle of the night. A lot of this fire activity was occurring in the dark of night. So the crews that were responding would have had no idea of the size of the fire, where it had come from, where it was going. They would have been only able to deal with what they could see at the time and they would have been confronted with um, whole suburbs on fire and would have been a very difficult decision about where to stop and where to go to work. And in terms of the resourcing, Chris, how many firefighters are on the fire? And what are some of the differences perhaps that you saw over there in terms of resourcing this fire than we'd experience in Australia? The day we arrived, uh, which was around about the 18th, I think, of October, it was about day 10 of the fire. I think it started on the 8th or the 9th. And they had 10,700 firefighters attached to the incident at the time. Um, and around about 1,500 uh, appliances or engines, as they refer to them. So that's an enormous amount of resources. The base camp that we were staying in at Simona 
uh, in Santa Rosa uh, had 6,000 people in it, the base camp alone. Right. So virtually a small town in itself. Well and truly a small town and then some. Chris, you mentioned uh, at their base camp they had the local inmates servicing the camp. What sort of role were the inmates playing? So the California Department of Corrections uses inmate crews uh, quite extensively for fireline work, and that's mainly cutting hand trails. Um, not so much at the pointy end of a, of a going fire, but certainly as part of the, the tidy up and the mop up. And they're also using them for uh, the cooking and managing parts of the camp. So there was an extensive inmate uh, population. None of them, I believe, from what we've been told, were high security, and they certainly wanted to be there. Um, my, my understanding is, is that the arrangement was that for every day they did on a fire was a day they got off their sentence. Is that right? There you go. There's something completely different that we very, experience very in different. Australia. Yeah, very different. Uh, we don't see that sort of thing. No, indeed. Oh, and Chris, you, you've shown me a few of the incident action plans, and I guess when, when we tend to produce an incident action plan for our fires here in Victoria, they tend to be one document often produced by one or two people within the incident management team, but clearly the IAPs that were developed for this fire have multiple sections and developed by different people. So how does it work? I was very impressed with the whole structure of the IAP. Uh, I think in some respects we, our IAPs evolve a little bit and we, we, we lose a little bit of perspective about is it an incident shift plan, is it, is it an incident action plan. It does tend to also be factored into what, at what point of an incident we're, we're, we're developing these or working on them. But however, the CAL FIRE and the American version, which is um, their ICS system, Incident Command Systems, and I think it falls out of NIMS, which is the, the precursor for us for AIMS, but nevertheless, uh, with that, it, there were very many components to the incident action plan, but you could choose which ones you wanted. Uh, so it was essentially a number of sheets or with an individual reference number. And those uh, sheets and those components of the incident action plan would be actually completed by the section chief or the head of that resource or that, that unit. So each section chief would compile their own, hand it to a central person, a person who would put together the whole document for then than to be disseminated to the crews who needed that particular piece of information. Exactly. So you could take the bits out of it that you wanted um, and certainly at the front there was almost like an index or a checkbox system which you knew what components were within it. You were able to very quickly refer to the, the section. So if you wanted to see the medical plan, you could refer to that section. Uh, but just to, to give you a bit of an idea of what the IAP for these fires had, it was uh, a roll call, so almost a... Um, a command structure, so breaking into the various divisions and branches, uh, who the various players were within that, as well as the IMT. Uh, there was a medical plan. There was a weather uh, summary. There was a fire behaviour summary. There was um, communications links. Most of the forms that we would know, but these were all done with their specific um, identifier so that they could be taken in or out of the IAP. And the other really good feature, which I was uh, very impressed with, is the use of QR codes. So each of the plans and the maps had a QR code on it, which if you had a QR reader on your electronic device, whether it be a phone or a tablet, uh, you could scan this QR code and it would give you um, access to an electronic version. So Chris, I've never really used a QR code before. So can you tell me what a QR code is? So a, a layman's QR, term. A QR code is essentially a barcode, but it's comprised of a square box which has uh, different shading. Uh, and each of those, it, it creates a unique 
reference number, I'll call it, or, 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 or a picture of a reference, and that way that the system knew exactly what that was and it was able to take you to an electronic Dropbox in the cloud and the documents were available there. And so that meant anyone who had access to the QR code could use their mobile phone, pick up the IAP, and there it is in their hand. And maps as well. So did that mean that the information could be disseminated quicker to the field? Did you notice a, a, a rapid increase in perhaps the ability to get incident action plans out to the troops? There was a lot of people that were using the QR codes and the electronic maps, a lot of, lot of guys that were just relying on that rather than hard copies, which suited them to a, to a degree. There are uh, readers out there that, because essentially it was a PDF, mm-hmm. so there are readers that you can... Um, Map, map readers, which I think one of them that they, most of the guys used was called a Venza, so that the PDF could sit in the background, uh, but it will almost work like a mapping program with some um, GPSing, so you could see where you were in relation to it. Um, so that, um, that, that was one way of doing it. However, they also had the ability to plot some pretty large maps, and given that we were working across the whole of the, of the Tubbs fire, I actually found it easier to refer to the, to the paper map in a lot of instances. Yeah. And Chris, briefings play a huge part in managing any type of incident, so how did CAL FIRE go about their briefings? So there was a series of briefings which started off uh, at around about 0600 with um, a briefing to the overhead, which, which is all of the supervisors. Uh, that's just a generic term they used for a branch supervisor or a division supervisor or a task force leader, that sort of thing. Um, that would be pretty much a, a summary of, of um, what to expect for the day. Uh, there wasn't a, a lot of um, content in that, more about um, making a roll call, making sure everybody was there uh, and that everybody understood what roles they were doing for the day. Then the next briefing was at 0700 each day. And that was held in within the grounds, but it was in a fairly large uh, covered pavilion with a stage, public address system, paper copies of the maps, lighting, the whole lot. Now, that briefing was delivered to all of the crew leaders uh, that were on shift for that day. Um, that would that was run run very smoothly, and and it was very um, uh, very well polished, and each of the section chiefs or the people that would have input into the IAP would get up and present a, a, an overview of their component of the IAP in around about a anywhere from a 30-second to a minute-and-a-half presentation, and they would walk onto the stage. Uh, there was a fairly strict order about how it was run, and they would talk. So the fire behaviour analyst would give you a very brief, this is what to expect for the day. The meteorologist would talk about... Uh, what the raw stations had, had given overnight, um, what recoveries were like, what to expect, uh, particularly because we were working at elevation in some areas, uh, those sorts of things, um, communications, the supply. Chief would get up there and say, we're missing some equipment. They were located in this part of the fire. If you're working there, we need them back. Uh, if you need hose or if you need this, this is where to find it, etc., etc. And then the final person that would get up would be the incident controller and he'd just uh, give a bit of an overview of of what he wanted and, and how things were progressing. So from that point, that, that 0700 briefing took around about 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, and then at that point you would then break out into your divisions or your branches uh, and there'd be a sign around the place uh, identifying each of those divisions and, and essentially a division in under the CAL FIRE system was a, was a sector and so you would then go to where your sector sign was and you would meet with your sector chief or your division chief and they would then 
delegate out the tasks for your sector individually to you so you would break out into these smaller groups. And in terms of each briefing, how many people would be at the, the whole briefing and then how, how smaller crews would it break down to in the other briefings? So the briefings are only ever delivered to the crew leaders. So mm-hmm. we, we didn't actually see a lot of the crew. Uh, the overhead briefing would have been about um, 30 people uh, at the times we were there. The main briefing to all of the crew leaders, there was probably around about 200 people. And then when you break down into your sector, you might have 20 to 30 at the maximum. Sometimes you might only have 10, depending on how many crews that you had in your, that were within your sector or your division. Chris, you also talked about that they're very good with managing incidents that might occur within an incident. What, what do you mean by that? This was a bit of a highlight uh, or a takeaway, I think, for quite a few of us, uh, that within the IAP the medical section, the medical component of the IAP, had uh, very clear instructions um, around about what would occur if a medical emergency or another incident occurred within a a division or a branch or a sector. So that that was referred to as an incident within the incident. And they were, I won't necessarily say they had the luxury of, but given that they ran their paramedic function out of their fire service, it was much easier for them to be able to locate paramedics or EMTs on the fire line and they were they were dotted very rarely would there be a sector without at least two or, or possibly four paramedics available uh, but this incident within an incident clearly detailed that if somebody was to be injured this was a process to follow uh, it even went to the extent of saying these are the um, this is how we can uh, uh, evacuate them via helicopter with with winch because it was some fairly steep terrain uh, and which hospital they would be able to be taken to. And Chris, so an, another difference perhaps in the way they, they set up their incident management structure is to have things called access groups. So what is an access group and how might it apply to the type of work we do here? So that was one of the roles that a few of us were involved in and the access group was uh, essentially a task force, approximately 150 people that were set up to um, do a make safe so that we could get access in for the utility companies, insurers, uh, the public and the residents themselves so they could get back to their properties to to see exactly what was left. Uh, And given that we weren't a geographical division, we were working across all of the Tubbs Fire and the access group I was working in, it it was referred to as a group because it didn't have a, 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 a geographical boundary, it was a whole fire. So we were working across that. So that involved things like um, predominantly hazardous tree assessments uh, on properties and along the roads themselves. And we also did other hazard assessments, culverts, uh, bridges that might have been impacted. Um, There was a lot of private driveways and private roads in there and some of the bridges had burnt out completely uh, and only the steel structure remaining. So a lot of these were plated with steel plates in order to be able to drive on them and, and that sort of stuff. Once the assessment had been done, we would send in either a, an engine crew or if it was fairly tall timber, we'd put in uh, fallers as well. And then hand crews would come in and they'd, they'd also do some, some cross-cutting work and a little bit of falling, but they'd then feed the chippers and, and we'd try to manage the debris as best we could. And Chris, um, strike teams, do they use strike teams over there or how do they set their crews up? So the strike teams were were very similar to ours and they were comprised of uh, five engines with a crew of uh, around about four or five per truck. 
and a strike team leader that was in a, a vehicle. One of the fundamental differences I did observe, though, was that the strike team leaders worked alone, uh, so they didn't have a driver or a scribe working with them. I don't know if that's a resourcing issue or if it's just the way they've traditionally worked. Uh, they were quite reactive. They were available to us if we if we had an issue where we needed some uh, if we identified some hotspots of fire or if we needed additional crew to help, uh, they were able to do that. They were also very they were, they were quite happy to split their crews up. So the five trucks might actually be tasked independent of each other and working in completely different sectors for for quite a, a length of time on their own. So so the, they've got a strike team leader. Yep. But they're going to deploy individual units to different sectors. For different tasks. For different tasks. Okay. Yeah, but ultimately the strike team still reports through the strike team leader. So in terms of span of control and chain of command, that those rules still applied. But they didn't keep the whole strike team together. So in comparison, the other significant resource on the fire line uh, are hand crews, mm-hmm. which comprise of about 20 people, and that's a mixture of fallers, supervisors, just general labourers, uh, guys that would be on the back of the uh, RACO or the Pulaski tool, etc., etc. And they would do most of the grunt work. Chris Calfire have a way of triaging a property to see if it is defendable. Can you talk us through the, the process they use? Yeah, I uh, found a, a form when we were out and about one day and put two and two together and came up with the fact that uh, someone had visited these premises and they'd made an assessment on the defendability. And this triage form was fairly easy. Uh, It was put in a a fairly common location, like on the front gate post or or a very visible location. And it essentially asked uh, uh, four questions, four main questions about being able to triage from an asset protection. So so this triage would occur... On the day, maybe if you've been deployed into a particular area, just getting to know the lay of the land, you can then use this system to triage different properties to see if it's safe to defend them? Exactly, yeah. So we're talking about houses that hadn't yet burnt. So this wasn't about saying this has been searched. There were other protocols that were used about whether or not search has been undertaken. But this was about saying the fire may still yet impact on these properties. Can we save them? Can we asset protect and the questions that were asked was, the first one is, of course, can we get an engine in there or a pump or a tanker? And that was the very, that was the very first question. So if we couldn't get a truck in there, then the chances of it being triaged highly were very low. The next question was, is there a guaranteed water source, uh, which could have either have been reticulated water or alternatively uh, static water supply of some description? If there wasn't sufficient water for the, for the job, for the task, then once again, um, go down the order in terms of triage. The next question is, and it falls under our 1030 and 1050 type of rules, is is there 100 feet of defendable space around the structure? That, I think, is a bit of a, not, not so much a throwback, but that's traditionally the training that they've always had is that you need a minimum of 100 feet defendable space. And then the last question was, were there any persons present? Uh, now, in an ideal situation, we wouldn't have any civilians still around their structures if they're going to be overcome by fire. However, I I think a little bit outside the box, and it may be that um, they may not be ambulatory or it may have another purpose, the the property, or there may not be time and space for them to evacuate it. Uh, So if any of the questions to those were no, that there wasn't uh, engine access, there wasn't water, 
there wasn't 100 feet dependable space uh, and there wasn't any people, it enabled there to be triaged a bit lower. Uh, and these, these uh, questions uh, are written on this form, the, the answers to these questions could be quite visible, so you could look at it very quickly, scan it, and then if it wasn't appropriate, move on to the next property. Mm. And, and I guess if I was a strike team leader taking a crew out into a, uh, an unknown environment, this would be a great thing to do, to deploy my crew to understand the lay of the land and, and really know where we should be deploying our troops safely. Definitely. There was also an area in that form as well for special comments if you needed to expand in, on any of those, those factors uh, as well or, or if you had to make special comment about why this was or wasn't the case, then you could do that as well. It wasn't just a tick and flick, uh, but it was a fairly easily visible form. The demobilisation process, how did they approach that? This was probably one of the... Uh, one of the highlights and one of the, the best takeaways I saw. Uh, I don't know whether or not we'd be able to apply it as easily in our world. However, um, the, the demobilisation, you were, it was a list that was generated overnight, uh, which you could access fairly early in the evening to find out if you were on the demob list for the next day. You were given a, a time frame that you were to attend, uh, a 10-minute window to attend the, the demob desk in the IMT, and from that point, you would be given a sheet, uh, and you had to take that sheet out to the various uh, divisions, or sorry, sections within the IMT, including things like ground support, which is their mechanics, and the mechanic had to check over your vehicle. If your vehicle had been off-road, and it didn't matter which fire service it was from, the only exemptions to that were rental cars, but uh, if your vehicle had been off-road, it had to be given a, a, a clearance by the mechanics, by the ground support. You then had to attend the communications um, section and they would then, you would have to return your equipment. They would sign your sheet to say, yes, no equipment's outstanding. Same thing went for supply. If you had hose or any or chainsaws or rake hose or anything else that you'd been issued with, and then you had to compile a list of these signatures, which was probably six or seven, and then you could go back and say, right, I'm, I'm good to go, and that's when they let you, let you demob officially back to your, uh, your home area. So, so a fairly serious process to work through? Look, it was very prescriptive, and it made it easy. There was, um, there was no grey. Mm. Everybody had to have the signatures, otherwise you weren't allowed to go. So no leaving early. No, and, and certainly no demobbing at night. You didn't work a day on the fire line yep. and then go, we've timed out, we're off tonight. You, so I, I believe the last day of your deployment included your travel home. Right. So in terms of, I mean, that's a really good process in terms of fatigue management then. There's no doubt that uh, only allowing people to go home during daylight hours is a tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there, there's a lot to be taken from that. I think the, the checking of the vehicles prior to their deployment is good, assuming that you've got uh, the logistical arrangements to support that, so you have enough mechanics um, and enough of a window of time to be able to check everything over. I think that's a good thing. Uh, but probably in the contrary is the fact that you've just come off a 13 or 14 day deployment. So in terms of fatigue, you're pretty wrecked anyway. But having said that, this is probably the best way to, to ensure that you get home in the safest way possible. Yeah, for sure. These sort of opportunities come up from time to time for people to get deployed interstate or overseas. Well, what are the things they need to consider before they take up these opportunities? That, that's a, a really good question because I, I've taken quite a bit of opportunity to do interstate deployments before. This is the first time I've been uh, yeah, allowed or been, been asked to go uh, international. I think 
anybody that goes, you need to be realistic about exactly what you're going to be going to do. Uh, they, they don't tend to use people at the absolute best of their ability. Uh, we tend to downgrade them a little bit just so that they're comfortable in the new processes and the new systems and working in that strange environment. There are, there's some factors which play into that. If they were pushed resource-wise, we, we, were, we got there when the fire was essentially contained and uh, it was in, in not so much a mop-up, but it was in trying to do a handover and, and start to... The firefighting being done, they needed to hand it back to the county. They needed to get the community back. They needed to be uh, getting into that recovery phase as quickly as possible. So we weren't really required to do a lot of work because uh, they, they had a lot of resources attached to it. Uh, but having said that, Probably my overarching theme that I've done with all of my deployments is, is that it's more about what you can learn from going overseas and seeing how other people, or interstate, seeing how other people operate. And I've had some, some fantastic experiences about seeing how other states do things. Uh, really opens your mind about other ways to, to, to function and to operate, particularly in the IMT sort of space, and about seeing uh, what we do well, what we don't do well. Which I think then begs a question, Chris, if, if we as a, an agency or Victorian emergency services community have to host other agencies coming from different states, uh, different countries, what can we do to make the experience of those visiting agencies better? Or how can we best utilise their skills? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good question because... The more we do this exchange, and I'll use the domestic stuff that we do, we're quite capable now of going to any, pretty much any state in Australia for any type of hazard. And we know that people that hold certain roles and have certain training can, can fill the function quite easily. And this is a bit of a tester, doing the same thing but international perspective. So the more we do of this, the more they see us, the more we see them the more comfortable we're going to get about saying send us some people to help and they can be embedded and they can be used meaningfully within the various structures. So in order to assist it coming back this way, there's, there's a, it was amazing how many offers we got of people to hide in our luggage. They're really keen. I, I don't think without um, anyone saying anything to the contrary, they want to come here to experience what we've got to offer too in terms of wildfire. So I think if we were going to harness that, uh, that attitude... We're best off to allow these people to come over, even, even if we don't necessarily, we're not screaming for resources, but give them the opportunity when we've got some fires. Uh, shadow them, mentor them, let them have a bit of a look at, at how we do things. Learn from them, just as, we, as, as we're able, um, that they're able to learn from us. Uh, share these experiences and it just paves the way for these relationships to be able to be used a bit more in the future. One of the debrief items we did also discuss with the senior Cal fire leadership was talking about a training package that could be part of a pre-summer even when we lodge our initial expression of interest forms our paperwork we could be undertaking an online training session about um, California or Canadian circumstances or their their environment and what to expect and some of the differences but at the end of the day I think the catch cry was fire is fire is fire it doesn't really matter where it is in the world and Chris, do you have anything you'd recommend to someone working in emergency management? And it can be anything at all. Recommend to anybody working in emergency management? Well, oh, look, I think on the theme that we were talking about before is that 
take every opportunity that's offered. Um, yeah, it, 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 you only really get a, a really good appreciation of how complex this industry is uh, when you work around and you work in different places, different hazards. I've been lucky enough to do fires, floods, um, all other sorts of stuff in all states. Um, yeah, it, it's really, it's it, you, you gain so much more from your personal development perspective uh, by exposing yourself to these environments. Uh, they're not as intimidating as what a lot of people think. Uh, we do train our people very well. Our people cope quite well in these situations. So yeah, I, I'd say to people, if you get offered the opportunity, take it with both hands. Thank you for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more about Chris's deployment, you can go to emergencymanagementpodcast.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at feedback at emergencymanagementpodcast.com. I'm Stuart Walker and you've been listening to the Emergency Management Podcast. Bye for now.